Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. This year's series is titled Growing Our Capacity to Lead. Through this podcast, we will work to make leadership tangible. We will try to take what some might see as subjective and make it objective. We'll let you hear conversations between master leaders and emerging leaders in ways that promote effective practices leading to desirable outcomes. Our goal is simple. After each podcast, we hope you have one idea, one practice, or one new leadership tool that you can implement immediately. Welcome to Living Leadership. When I was getting my master's at the University of Northern Colorado, I was studying human communication. One of the Thanksgivings in that program, one of the members of my cohort invited us all over to her and her husband's house for Thanksgiving. So we all walked in, crockpots in hand, having made horribly cheap, but very, very tasty because it was high in salt, fat, and sweet food. Uh, we were told there would be wine and beer on hand. We didn't have to bring that. And so uh, we headed in and sure enough, we saw a case of red, we saw a keg, but we all realized as we got in the door that my colleague's husband had started before we got there. Uh, he was enjoying both wine and beer. And sometimes he actually had two beers in, in one in each hand as he was watching the football games and shouting at the TV. Now, we were all pretty close, so nobody really thought that much about it. However, things got a little bit awkward when during the meal, he started to ask some pretty serious questions about why we were all taking our degree. Why on earth in 1997 did people really need to study human communication? Was that necessary? He was asking, do people really not know how to communicate right now? He said, I communicate every day. How do people not know how to do this? He actually asked one of my colleagues, wasn't getting a degree in communication like getting a degree in walking? <laughs> Today's podcast is going to focus on a similar kind of issue that often comes up when people talk about leadership. Do people really need to learn how to lead? Doesn't leadership just come with your first managerial position, your first directorship? Are leaders born or can we teach people to actually become better leaders? Can we teach them in case, some cases to overcome perhaps personality issues that are making leadership difficult? And maybe the best question of all, what does an organization do if they don't have good leaders? How does leadership take place in those kinds of organizations? Can that organization reach their goals without strong leaders? In November, we were honored to speak with recently retired Brigadier General Dan Dent. While November is not Military History Month, perhaps it should be, both because of Veterans Day and Thanksgiving and the freedoms that we all uh, have because of what our military bring us, but that might be an excellent month for us to, to use for Military History Month. But if November recognizes the military, then I hope it's not a stretch to say that December, for many, represents connectedness, people, giving, kindness, and some degree of hope. I have to admit, I'm excited to be back at a university where we don't have winter break or holiday lunch, we have Christmas break and Christmas parties. That excitement to me goes way, way, way back. This is my absolute favorite time of year. I work as hard as I can to give my family the best possible Christmas year over year from experiences to meals to gifts. I love the nostalgia, I love the feeling of finding just that right thing that will absolutely delight someone else I love the warmth that I associate with family and friends. 
and trying to make a point of getting together. Because of that, it is with tremendous excitement that I present to you our guest today. It is not unfair to say that my excitement for Christmas is entirely due to the guests that we have today. Now, it would be really cheesy or really cool of one of the two to bring out Santa Claus right now, but that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> it actually is my pleasure to introduce a pastor of more than 50 years, an academic administrator of more than 35 years, a, an academic dean, an interim president of a seminary, a faculty member who has taught hundreds of pastors how to, how to preach, a church consultant who still goes around the globe transforming churches with a track record I would argue is unprecedented, and a man who created a Christmas framework for myself and my family that led to a tremendous love that we have for this season all these years later. I am so excited to introduce my dad, Dr. Paul Borden. Welcome, Dad. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here, and I love Christmas, too. <laughs> I know you do. You always did an amazing job getting us the best Christmas possible. So if I haven't said thank you before, I think I have, but thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so, Dad, just so our, our our listening audience can can get to know you a little bit better, all those things I said about your tree, but in your own words, tell us, you know, not just who you are and what positions of leadership you've had. How how do you define leadership uh, as we as we come into this next few minutes to talk about it? Well, I've always said uh, I like the response as a description of leadership, and then I'll talk about the definition. Yep. Is basically as anyone following. Uh, I've realized that when if you have to let people know you're the leader, you probably aren't the leader. And if you think you're the leader and no one's following, you aren't the leader. And so for me, whether it, the person is a good leader, or a, a poor leader, or a moral leader, an immoral leader, whatever, are people following. And so to me, as I've looked at my own career and my own positions, uh, are people following me if I am in a leadership position? Having said that, <clears throat> my best uh, definition is basically that leadership is influence. In other words, I want to see if I can influence people to go in a direction that I think is appropriate, that uh, really needs to be the direction that the organization or the group needs to go in and follow that. And uh, so to me is influence. Now, I realize you can broaden that out so that when a person watches a very uh, moving film, they may come out of there influenced by the director and the actors and whatever. And in that, that sense, I think they were leading, they were influencing people or a playwright or uh, a, a, a musician. But I'm thinking of it in terms more about the direction for a, an organization to accomplish things. So for me, the, the term that I have found most comfortable is the word influence. So I think uh, I, I get what you're saying. So first of all, I like I like the notion that if people aren't being led, you know, it's if a tree falls in the forest, right? Is there sound? Yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, but in terms of that intentionality, let me ask you a question that I've asked in every podcast so far, and it it really goes to that word for me. I said in the opening podcast, and for those of you that are, if this is your first time, please go back and check out the first couple of podcasts. I think they're they're worth your time. But I said in that opening podcast, my favorite leadership term is the word intentional. So you're doing things with purpose. I know you can luck into leadership, but uh, I'm curious, what's your favorite term when it comes to uh, leadership? You mean besides influence? Yeah. 
Uh, well, you know, I, I when I listened to your podcast, uh, I, I was impressed with the with the word intentionality because I found that often when I use the word influence, it's almost a synonym. In other words, uh, I think every organization I've been in, I've been in a leadership position. And I've felt a sense of responsibility that it's my job to leave that organization in a better place than where it is when I came to that organization. And that that requires intentionality. It requires assessment. It requires thinking about what are the urgent issues that need to be addressed. So uh, I would be very comfortable in terms of intentionality. But I, it, for me, it's, it's the idea that in that intentionality, I have the ability than to get people to follow in terms of where I think we should be going because I've been given that responsibility with the position that I have. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so as I described at the beginning, Dad, you have you have really been a leader in many contexts. Um, I know that you have led churches, seminaries, cohorts of pastors. Uh, I think today we want to focus a little bit, though, on the coaching that you've done with those groups of pastors. Could you just give us an understanding of the context there? Describe that a bit for the audience. Yes. Uh, in, in the day and age in which we live, uh, churches, congregations, religions, uh, at least in North America, in Europe, uh, also in Australia, New Zealand, where, as you know, I've spent a lot of time, the church is basically losing status in the community. Uh, churches are declining, churches are small. Uh, I find that whereas uh, 25, 30 years ago, when there was an issue, often they wanted to know what did this bishop say or what did this pastor say or what did this uh, pastor now of a mega church have to think about what's happening in the community. Today, the, 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 the ability of the church to have influence in a community and for good, for the mission, for uh, all the things that hopefully are consistent with the teachings of Jesus uh, is diminishing because the churches themselves are diminishing for the most part. Um, you know, the average size congregation today in the United States is probably less than 75 people on a Sunday morning, which is normally the best way to measure in terms of people who show up for church. So for me, uh, I wanted to help churches go through what I call a transformation, and I can explain what kind of transformation I mean, but I wanted them to go through transformation. And I realize that most people who are trained for to be a pastor or to be in some kind of denominational setting, again, whether it's a Roman Catholic tradition, whether it's a Protestant tradition. Now, it's interesting, the term all of them use is the term shepherd. Uh, I mean, it's even in the titles of some of the bishops or the pope or whatever is the term shepherd. Now, when you think of the term shepherd, there's really two major things a shepherd did. A shepherd led sheep. Uh, they, you don't herd sheep, you lead sheep. But shepherds also cared for sheep. So you really have a leadership role and you have a caregiving role. And I think one of the reasons why we're seeing the demise in what's happening across uh, our nation, for example, in terms of the influence that churches have, is that most of the training, most of the uh, uh, 
people who are coming out of seminaries, coming out of graduate schools, they are focusing on the care side of the shepherd metaphor. They are not focusing on the leadership side because shepherds also did things to sheep that sheep didn't like. They would take their wool. <laughs> and when you take their meat, that's kind of a total commitment at that point, you know, and uh, they wanted them to reproduce. They wanted them to focus on others. And that has been lost for the most part. So having said that, I find that at least in the churches that I've worked with over the years, and I've worked with about 40 different denominational groups, most pastors have been trained to be caregivers. They have been trained to give to provide care for the sheep that they have at that point. And they really don't see themselves in a leadership position. And when you ask them to lead, quote, the congregation to do some difficult things, most of them shy away from it. They don't know how to do it. They back away from it. So for me to help churches transform means that I also have to help the leaders, the pastors, the uh, even in denominations of the bishops, the district superintendents, I have to teach them that they have a leadership role. And I have found that most of the leaders I work with, and when I say leaders, I mean people in leadership positions are not leaders, don't see themselves as leaders, and are sometimes offended if you say to them, I want you to be a leader. And so how do I help them become someone who can change the direction of the congregation, the dot denomination, whatever it is. And so most of my coaching is helping people who don't have a mindset. And I would often use the, the term, I don't think they often have the personal wiring to be a high capacity leader. So what do I do with them? So our coaching primarily has focused on helping people who don't see themselves as leaders, may not have the capacity for leadership, to at least focus on key behaviors of leadership they have to learn, not only learn conceptually, but learn how to implement, learn how to practice, learn how to do time after time after time. And so my coaching has been more like an athletic coach or like a music teacher or like an art teacher is to say, here are some behaviors you have to learn, but I also have to teach you when to use them, how to use them, what, you know, and when you did it this way, that, that was a good behavior. It was a poor behavior because I find the people I work with as a, as say compared to executive coaches, they don't even know the questions to ask the coach. I have to provide the questions. I have to provide the direction. I have to provide the help. So most of my coaching with pastors uh, has been in what are leadership behaviors you need to practice with consistency and let me help you learn how to do that with some degree of effectiveness. Yeah. Yeah. So, so dad, you and I have had conversations for years um, about the Dunning-Kruger effect about confirmation bias, right? I, I would tie it back to education and say, every professor believes themselves to be Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society, right? They all think they're amazing and changing lives. Um, and I know you and I have had conversations about every preacher thinks that they're, you know, a Stanley or whatever. They're, they're out there changing the world with all their words. Uh, in terms of leadership, let's take a let's take a cohort of ten. So you you got ten pastors that that are that you are trying to help with this this leadership notion. Out of that ten, how many 
are exhibiting those leaderly qualities. They're helping drive change. They're intentionally developing others. They're, you know, looking after the care of the church, the denomination. How many out of 10 do you suppose you get? One or two. Okay. Yeah. So if that, if, if you, let's say, let's just stick with two. What do you do with the other eight? (laughs) Okay. Well, first of all, I have to determine first. Well, first of all, I have to challenge them to understand that they are, are they willing to accept some degree of responsibility for leadership? I mean, it's no different than being in an academic setting where professors get up and bore kid, the, the students and then say, well, that's your fault. You didn't listen, you know, you know, where the professors, I have no responsibility. And I find when it comes to leadership, there's some pastors who say, I have no responsibility. And if they take that position, I can't help them. Okay. But assuming I can help them, and I often do that by talking about saying, look, you are in a position of leadership. Are you willing to accept the responsibility? The model that it it goes across all denominational settings, at least in the United States, in terms of either Roman Catholicism or Protestantism is the shepherd. So that is a leadership position where you not only care, but you have to do things with the sheep that the sheep don't want to do. Are you willing to look, and I am in sense making of these other eight people, self-judgments as to how many behaviors they can take on. I have to show them what those behaviors are. I have to show them how to implement them. And most of my coaching is like, is saying, uh, because it usually is in a once once a month personal setting or setting on Zoom now, but then usually once a month individual is to set goals and to say, now, this next time you go in to meet with your lay leadership group, whether you call it a vestry, the elders, the board, the deacon, whatever it is, you need to do this, this, and this, and then to assess what they did and say, now, when you did that, that was excellent. When you did that, that really undercut your leadership, even though you didn't know it. So it's very hands-on and it's very behavior-centered. So we've got sort of the the throughput. Let me ask you quickly about a word I know you you use a lot. You've used you used this word before it was cool to use. Um, it's in one of the titles of your books. Um, I, I know you love the word transformation, and you're right. really trying to get these architects of transformation, the leaders, to to actually help with with transformation. What does leading transformation actually mean to you? How can leaders tangibly uh, do that. You've described congregational transformation as you've used the analogy of a mansion with me before, a, a renovation of a mansion. Why Why that analogy? Why does that, that work for you? Well, first of all, the reason I want to use the word, the metaphor of a mansion, for me, who, as you know, I know nothing about building, how to use a hammer, a screwdriver, whatever. If someone said, here's the man- mansion, and it was built in the 1950s, and it needs to be totally renovated, I would be flabbergasted by the complexity of what I have to do. I mean, there's the plumbing, there's the uh, landscaping outside, there's the cement work, there's the tile work, there's the you know the carpentry, there's all the zoning issues you got to deal with. To say, I don't know if I can do that. Now, the reason I'd like to use that is when most people look at a small congregation. I, I found when I was at the seminary, most of, most of our graduates wanted to go out and said, I want a congregation of 50, 75 people that will let me preach. I'll visit them. I'll, and it was like, I just want this little group. They don't realize to get that size group to go from 
where they are and with the, a mission that is inward. And it was Drucker who said years ago, the minute any organization begins to be run for itself is the day it dies. And most churches are run for the people who are there, not to reach out to the people who aren't there. Okay. So for me, the transformation is really a major change in mission. That the mission is not for us, but the mission is for those who don't even know we exist yet. In fact, I used to ask our churches when we were going through our major turnaround, I said, if the proverbial bomb goes off on Sunday and your church disappears, will anybody miss you? And most of them were honest enough to say, no, you know, we we won't be. Nobody even knows we're here. And, and the, the city would like to have our land attacked. Let's put a business there. So for me, transformation is to get, it's really almost the change of the culture. Uh, so I think, you know, I think there are minor transformations, but I want to go after systemic transformation and it's complex. Uh, there, most pastors do not realize what issues and behaviors they have to be practicing consistently to see a congregation of 75 people consistently become a congregation of 125 consistently and have more resources to feed the poor, to help those who need uh, tutoring or what to do the mission of the church. It, it, it's a complex situation and they don't even know what behaviors will help them achieve those complex uh goals that they need to reach. So that's why I'm using a mansion. Excellent. And and in that description, Dad, you use the word mission three times. So yeah. we're going to bring the students in here in just a minute and we'll we'll have a conversation about how how we can tie some of the stuff that they're going through in their programs to some of the words you've used here and some of the, and some of your you know leadership strategies. But I think it's important though that we define mission or at least you tell us what you mean when you say mission. Every church, every pastoral leader helps craft a mission, I think, when they get to the church for the first time. They see that mission statement as that anchoring document. Um, and yet, I've heard you say many times, we expect our churches and congregations to be um, to, to have one, but not to be missional. Right. And what does that mean when you say it? Okay. Well, first of all, I believe every organization has a mission. Most of the time, it's unstated. But there's a mission. So, you know, my position is that in most congregations, the mission of the church is to primarily take care of the people who are there. And they are the first priority, not the people who have the real needs in the community beyond them. So for me, the mission is to say, how do we move from focusing primarily on ourselves to focusing on those that Jesus told us to be interested in, uh, the, the poor, the, the, the hungry, the, the downtrodden, the, 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 you know, the, like the Good Samaritan of reaching out to the person who's oppressed. So the term, the illustration I'm using anymore is the illustration between a cruise ship and a Coast Guard rescue vessel. Now, the mission of the cruise ship is, is to take care of the primary customer, which are the people who buy the cruise. We will feed them. We will entertain them. We will even give them uh, experiences. If they want to learn things, we'll do it in a nice setting. And if we do it well enough and give them a great value, you know, we'll get more and more people on the next cruise, and that's how you maintain. Now, if you look at a Coast Guard rescue vessel, the captain of the Coast Guard rescue vessel feeds his or her crew well. They train them well. And if they have been training them hard, they even give them R&R, &R, which is rest and recreation. 
But everyone on that ship realizes that they're not on the ship for themselves. They're on the ship to reach the, uh, the, the ships that are in the storm who are going down. So sometimes when we bring a mission to a church, it's like saying, okay, you're on this cruise. You've paid thousands of dollars to go to the Caribbean, and you're going to have all these experiences, et cetera. By the way, uh, we're going to go by some islands that have been economically devastated. Uh, on one day, we're going to give you time to get in a smaller boat and go over there, and you can feed those people. And the next day, we're going to take another group and let them help build an orphanage. Or we're going to go to another place and let them educate some children who don't even know how to read. But when you come back at night, we're going to give you an awesome dinner. We're going to give you entertainment. You're, you know, you're going to have more than you can eat. Uh, you know, you can put your gain your 20 pounds. It happens on most cruises for a week. And, and we try to bring the mission into an entity that is not designed for mission. So for me, transformation is not only saying the mission is primarily not for us, but to do the mission of Jesus for others. And how do we then not only say we're going to do it, but literally allow that to change the way we work, we organize the entity to do it with greater and greater effectiveness. I suspect that some of our listening audience who know me personally are now understanding why some of my some of my strategies around higher education are what they are. Uh, that's that's brilliant, Dad. Thank you so much uh, for the conversation with me. I, I, I always love this. But now we'd like to bring in our students. At Horizon Credit Union, community is who we serve, and helping you grow is our goal. Your path is our purpose, and together we can make a positive impact. Whether you're ready for a checking account, a home loan, or a team that cares about your dreams, doing business here does good in the community. Discover the difference and open your account today or find a branch near you at hzcu.org. Horizon Credit Union is an equal housing opportunity lender insured by NCUA. Okay. Uh, so I, I just want to introduce them to our listening audience. We've got a couple of students that are in the School of Leadership Studies here. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, but uh, let me start with Molly Ayers. Molly, can you join us and uh, tell the audience a little bit about who you are? Hi. Well, thanks, first of all, for inviting me into this space. And Paul, it's just wonderful to hear your perspective on leadership. Um, I'm a current DPLS student. I'm almost very close to the end, so I'm finishing up my dissertation, uh, but it's been an incredible six years, um, really exploring like all facets of leadership particularly in the context of the work that I do. Um, I work here at Gonzaga University leading our community engagement efforts. And so um, this program has really provided the opportunity for me to think about um, leadership through the context of community, community building. And I think like Paul, to some of what you talked about, um, this idea of how is mission expressed in the work that we do and in the why that we do it. Because I think similarly institutions of higher education Concern students in transactional ways, um, but Jesuit institutions in particular are meant to serve students in transformational ways. So um, thanks again for having me here. It really is a word that we like to use here and uh, an important one. And at the same time, we have a, a second student who's joining us, Adam Gearlock. Uh, you also are in the School of Leadership Studies. Welcome. And could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks so much. It's so wonderful to be here and especially Talking about coaching and transformation, you know, coach is the only 
career title job I've ever had now that I, I think about it. Uh, I'm, I'm a leadership coach, uh, a student in Gonzaga's doctoral program in leadership studies. And uh, before leadership coaching, I coached Division One men's college basketball uh, for about a decade. Uh, I own and operate my own leadership coaching practice now where I primarily uh, serve collegiate athletic programs, coaches, teams, and student athletes, in addition to uh, working for a couple of uh, coaching organizations and leadership institutes, uh, supporting the development of uh, students uh, and executives and individuals and organizations as leaders. Uh, my studies are primarily focused around uh, exploring the emotional culture of interpersonal trust in the head coach-student athlete relationship and the capacity for complexity of head coaches to build relationships characterized uh, by interpersonal trust. Uh, it's so wonderful to be here and to join this conversation. Thank you so much, both of you. So uh, I'd like to start with uh, with both Molly and Adam by asking you, you heard the first part of the conversation that we had here. Uh, there were obviously a lot of metaphors. We're talking about shepherds and house renovations and boats and all sorts of things. Um, I'm curious, as you've been studying leadership now for a, a healthy year, couple of years, um, I know you've got a lot of theorists under your belt. You've got a lot of books under your belt. What are you thinking as you hear this? What uh, what questions does it bring to mind uh, based on some of the things that you've been looking at, some of the research you've been doing, some of the studying that you've had? Molly, why don't you hop in here uh, first? Oh, um, so I've got, again, kind of a lot of uh, thoughts. Um, you know, some of been really interesting, kind of like, your perspective, Paul, on leadership and really like stepping into the space and owning that space as a leader and what what that means. Um, and I think a lot about kind of this idea of a congregation, they're like electing to participate and engage. And so there's complexity with groups that are choosing to or not to be engaged and involved. And um, and so just kind of thinking about like this idea of um, whether it's authentic leadership or participatory leadership, how are, um, how do you help leaders understand kind of that role in both developing strong relationships um, and cultivating those, but also being able to have kind of the, the guiding star and being able to move people forward together. So think a little bit about this idea of power with and power to um, as part of a, a congregation and moving forward. Well, obviously, most of my life, except in the academic world, but at least in the church world, I have been working with purely volunteer organizations. In fact, uh, I have worked with several denominations that are much more uh, rigid in their hierarchy, and they are amazed that they have that we have seen the success we've had because they said you you can't force things. Well, ultimately, you can't force things uh, no matter what kind of organization you're in. Uh, I've come to realize that. So for me, one of the, for example, one of the things I had to learn is, well, two things. First is, if I'm not willing to model what I'm talking about as the leader, in this day and age where authenticity is so crucial, uh, I have lost probably the right in the minds of people to lead. So uh, I want them to know that I'm willing to risk, I'm willing to make sacrifices, I'm willing to give things up to accomplish the mission that's there. The second thing is, and uh, I, I remember going back and looking at uh, Cotter's work on change, 
and how he said in the book, he um, never, un he underestimated initially the, the whole issue of creating urgency. Probably the biggest mistake I made as a leader. We had gone through a uh, five-year program and we had seen great success with our congregations. And I had gathered together some of our top pastors. And when I say top, it wasn't by the size of their church, but it was about the amount of change their church had gone through. They had led that to talk about doing a new initiative. And uh, I uh, assumed that they were on board with me about the new initiative. And so I just cast the vision. I said, this is what we want to do, et cetera. It fits with what we've been doing. We're going to build on what we've had. And I actually had one of the leaders stand up and said, we're not going to do that. Now, you know, my first thought was, where's that business card, 1-800 called Guido? How can I take this person out? Which is not a very Christian thing to think about. But I realized that I had cast vision without creating urgency for the vision. And I have found that I think we need to talk far more about how to create urgency before we talk about mission and vision. In fact, I think the mission and vision has to be an answer to the urgency we have created. Now, the other thing that hardly people people don't talk about a lot, though, is, is how do you create urgency positively? Because when you create urgency, you're talking about uh, negatives. You're talking about this is where we are. This is where the organization is. This is what we're not doing. And I find that that that's where vision comes in. I say, well, you know, this can happen. This can happen. This can happen. But it can't happen now because we're not doing this. We're not doing this. But the more I create urgency, particularly when you're working with volunteers, whether they're the, the, the lay leaders in the church or whether they're the congregation, the more you create urgency, the more the easier it is to create vision. And to me, I would say my last uh, uh, 10 to 12 years of my my professional life, I never cast vision until I've created urgency. And that I have to create urgency before vision ever comes. And vision has to be an answer to the urgency that people want to buy into. So dad, let me let me follow up a little bit on what Molly was talking about. I have, I have a it, it stems to me, uh, sometimes from a dysfunctional congregation, right? That there are oh, yeah. there sure. are people who don't want the kind of leader you're explaining, because again, that congregation is focused inward, not outward, and they right. want someone who's going to come in and take it. How how do you wrestle with or or deal with uh, that that unhealthy enablement by uh, a congregation? How do you overcome something like that? Well, I think there's two ways to overcome it. One is you have to take your time and build what I think it's Cotter calls it a guiding coalition. And so I, I so for example, I was coaching a, a pastor in a very, what I would call toxic congregation. They just saw her as a hired hand and uh, you do what we say and we'll, we'll, we'll maybe pay you something, but you know, we're in charge here. And I said, you've got to find your EF Hutton's the people, you know, that everybody listens to. And you've got to begin to cultivate them. And you've got to do it individually. You've got to do it in a group. 
and it's got to be consistent. This is the behavior. You've got to call them up, take them out for coffee, take them out for lunch and talk about, you know, did you hear what happened in that meeting? That really wasn't very, you know, that really wasn't very Christian. That wasn't very godly. Uh, you know, where's that come from? And she did this. And it's interesting. She was there in an interim uh, way with a contract for a year. She left. But when she left, those EF Huttons led a change and got rid of the power brokers. Now, it also means that at some point you have to stand up to the power brokers. And I find many pastors are saying, look, I've got to be kind. I've got to be gracious. I've got to do. Yes, we do. I mean, that's part of what. But there, there were times when Jesus was pretty stern and often he was most stern with his disciples. When they were saying, you know, this is a look what we're doing, look what's accomplishing. He'd say, no, wait a minute. You haven't considered this. You haven't considered that. Uh, and so we have to realize that often our image of uh, caregiver limits us from saying, no, as the leader, just like a child, the best thing you can do for the child at this point is discipline. So first of all, for Adam, Molly, anyone on our podcast under the age of 40, Go to YouTube and look up EF Hutton commercial. <laughs> You'll have a sense. Of, yeah. That's uh, a commercial. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Everyone listened to what EF Hutton had no to say idea. about finance. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for translating. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, so, uh, Adam, I know, you know, in your coaching, and I know you've done a lot of sports coaching, but you're also doing a lot of leadership coaching, that that notion of, who people listen to, the notion of sort of the natural leader versus the formal leader versus the enablement of what people want that maybe neither leader wants to bring. Uh, I know you you run into that. I'm curious, how is this resonating with you, uh, again, with your studies and, and, and whatnot? Yeah, you know, there are a number of things that are resonating with me from the conversation. You know, uh, I'll touch on what you just asked, uh, Dean Borden, but first uh, just highlighting the importance of really professional, done well, leader development that's necessary across professions. Uh, Paul, I think you highlighted this previously in the conversation is that uh, pastors come out of seminary school or, um, you know, I'm Jewish, so I'm not quite familiar with all the intricacies of becoming a pastor, but they come out of seminary school and it's, you know, go be a pastor. And there's the, you know, this leader development and leadership training or education uh, behavior, skill setting that you're focused on, or the cognitions and emotions, uh, the emotional development, if we want to look at constructive developmental theory and how people uh, make meaning, not just what information that they have um, that then would support higher levels of capacity uh, for leadership, um, that just isn't instructed, uh, or that just isn't a part of the education uh, at whatever form. And so there is a need for really professional uh, done really well leader development by individuals who have the background, the dispositions, the skill sets to really develop leaders at um, uh, in whatever ways that we do. You know, I remember a recent conversation with a head coach that I was having. We were talking about some of the, uh, you know, uh, you know, some of the research around well-functioning relationships. We look at uh, the work of the positive emotional attractor versus the negative one for learning, growth, and development from Richard Boyatzis. Maybe we look at Gottman Institute's five positives for one negative uh, uh, as well. And you know, they, it, you know, these, this kind of information just kind of uh, blew their mind. They said, "Well, why haven't we been told any of this?" And I said, "You know, I don't know. It's you know, what what does this say about the this profession, this 
this collective uh, and how they view and conceptualize leadership that these kind of areas aren't focused on. But I think that happens across disciplines, across professions more often uh, than not. Uh, yeah, how, and how about that, Dad? How about the, the socio-emotional, the interpersonal um, that really does seem, it seems to translate in, in leadership qualities that people want to follow versus the high production, you know, high financial acumen people that often we, we see in maybe movies about Wall Street or whatever it might be. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about what that looks like when you're when you're dealing with the cohorts you're dealing with? Well, first of all, I, I what what Adam has been saying about the positives and those those relationships, I agree wholeheartedly with. And I think early in my career, I was too negative in terms of of how I would come at things. And uh, uh, I remember one leader I was saying, uh, when I hear you, I get excited. When I hear others who are even more famous than you talk, I don't get excited. And I said, why? And, he, and his response was, they don't think they're going to win. And I thought that was a really interesting concept. But uh, but here's, here's why those relationships must always be kept, or as I'm developing these relationships, as I'm working on those relationships, it's always in relationship to the urgency and to the mission. In other words, and it's never about me. It's never about the organization. We we hardly ever talk to a church about actual growth. I mean, growth growth is not a sign of health. Uh, lack of growth is a sign of ill health. But growth is never a sign of health. Uh, I, I think growth growth is 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 something that happens as you become healthy. And so the idea was not on on these things that often give people credit say, uh, you know, I've got in the financial world, I've got so much money or, you know, I'm going to make more than you are, or I've got a bigger office. The question is how much more effective are you in terms of reaching the mission and vision that is outward, that that's what provides the motivation as you work on these interpersonal relationships. The other thing that I really have worked on is once say a pastor begins to get that concept is to have her or him train the people they're working with to do the same thing with others and to see this growth as a multiplication issue, not as an addition kind of thing. So that model, that dispersion model, as some would think about it in, in leadership uh, speak, uh, almost a discipleship model in, in your world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, is is really something that we're that you're trying to promote. So they're not only leading their congregations, they're leading groups of leaders that ultimately can really make them scalable. Fair. Yeah. In fact, when when churches go through transformation, I find that that transformation is limited by the amount of uh, leaders they have been training in the process that you only get to a certain level. And if you're not preparing more leaders, I'm working with a uh, pastor right now in a county seat in a very poor area. And, 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 and the community, the leaders in the community are saying, your church is important to us. And they are, I mean, expanding, they're doing all the feeding programs and uh, learning programs and, you know, all kinds of things, but he hasn't been training more leaders and now they're they're getting to the point where the church is about ready to plateau because they don't have new leaders to take over, and so that's been part of the part of the problem. 
I'm curious, Molly, Adam, you're you're hearing all of this. Yeah, Adam, let's uh let, let's hear some more. Yeah, you know, certainly leader development at all levels and you know, supporting others in their development as leaders is undoubtedly a critical uh role of uh, a leader in an organization. You know, I think the question that you had uh put to me previously, uh Dean Borden was around. Uh, leadership as influence, leaders throughout the organization as well. And if leadership is influence, that means we are all leaders all uh, all of the time because we're influence, influencing each other through our emotions, emotional contagion, through our cognitions, through our behaviors, no matter what we're doing. And so it's, are we doing this well? Are we doing it in a way that's you know effective and supportive of whatever mission and purpose that we're wanting to move towards? Or are we doing it poorly? So supporting individuals and increasing their capacity to lead and maybe influence better becomes really important. Uh, but there's uh, some uh, research that I encountered recently around the leader development level uh, of CEOs and executives for organizational effectiveness, which showed that the uh, or which demonstrated or put out, you know, maybe uh, put out there uh, um, preliminarily was that the success of transformation or organizational transformation was directly correlated to the CEOs or executives uh, capacity for mutuality enhancing power, which is theoretically only found at higher levels of forms of meaning making as well. So it's not just the responsibility, I would say that it's not just the responsibility of the leader to develop other leaders. It's certainly that's part of it. But then there's the responsibility for advancement and growth and development in one's own form of meaning making as a leader as well. If this capacity for mutuality enhancing power, which is not just unilateral with me imposing something onto somebody else, but uh, being in a relationship that uh, increases the capacity of both of us to lead, uh, maybe to look at Mary Parker Follett's conceptualizations of leadership. Um, certainly, that places the responsibility for growth and development uh, and meaning making uh, uh, on the leader, CEO, executive, head coach, whatever term we want to use there, as incredibly critical in uh, uh, moving forward organizational transformation. The interesting part of this study as well was that the cases where organizational transformation was successful, but the CEO was not at a more advanced level of meaning making, was that they stepped out of the way somewhat and they allowed uh, other leaders or organizational consultants or leadership coaches to lead, quote unquote, the change. Um, and those individuals were demonstrated to have higher levels of, uh, uh, of a leader or higher leader development level. And so there's an interesting... Uh, there's an interesting composite or interesting uh, implication there that I see is if maybe if we're not at that level ourselves, can we at least step back uh, and then allow others to lead and not get in the way of uh, of possible transformation or change that 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 might take place? It's a call for you know, humility, uh, maybe ego humility and intellectual humility, um, and I think that's uh, uh, really fascinating when we look at. Um, you know, moving organizations forward, so to speak, and the uh, the meaning making of uh, leaders, leader development level, le uh, um, uh, leader development throughout an organization uh, as well. Dad, do you do you operationalize what Adam was just referring to? Do you how do you how do you deal with uh, getting people to get kind of get out of the way and let some others do some of the things as as you referred to it earlier, their skills, their talents. Um, and really sort of bring up that safety net of leadership versus just the sole, you know, person yeah. taking everybody up the hill. Well, let, let me talk about two things related to that, uh, Adam, to build on that. Intentionally, we would take uh, probably 20 to 25 pastors 
every, at least every other year, who had made uh, significant strides in leading change and leading transformation away to uh, some kind of study on their own as a group where uh, it was not about the church. It was just about leadership and how to develop. I mean, for example, we took them down to uh, Disney World to a whole creative conference on how to be creative and whatever is involved in that. And so part of that was to helpfully help them be developing as leaders. But part of the uh, coaching and maybe more, Jeff, in the consulting that I do, there are times when I've had very honest conversations with highly effective pastors and say, look, uh, do you realize that the organization right now is plateaued? Do you realize that there are these rumblings that are going to, uh, you know, create whatever toxicity shouldn't be created within the organization? Uh, if you are willing, I'm willing to help you figure out, you know, a plan or work, whatever, where you can begin to deal with those issues. And uh, Adam mentioned the whole idea of ego. I found with some pastors, they they can handle it and other pastors, they can't. And, and as a result, it usually leads to some disaster down the road because they haven't been willing to uh, be humble in that regard and say, no, I've got to I've, I've got to do it. You know, in fact, uh, one of the reasons why I stepped down when I did, I stepped down when I was 70. I realized that our organization had gone through two mission vision cycles one took five years one took 10 years and both had been successful and i knew i had the physical energy to lead another assault if you will on a vision and mission i didn't have the emotional energy and i was going to just slough my way through and and i said to the the person who followed me i right now i'm your i'm your worst enemy because everybody's going to compare what you do to what we did. So when I leave, I will not come back in any way, shape, or form to help you unless you invite me, which he never did, by the way, which that's okay. That was fine. I, I, he took me at my word, but I'm not, I'm not going to, I've got to get out of your way because right now everybody will be measuring on what's happened in the last 15 years. And that's unfair to you at that point. So, yeah, Adam, and then I'd love to, I'd love to get another question from Molly as well. Yeah. Uh, Paul, what cultivated that awareness for you that you didn't have the emotional energy to continue uh, another cycle? And then, you know, maybe what supported you uh, in stepping down rather than saying, well, yeah, I don't have the emotional energy, but I'm the leader here. So I'm going to stay in this uh, anyway. Well, uh, I get what happened. Well, I really believe in the life cycle of things particularly even organizations. So when I've worked with congregations, I work on the issue of the life cycle. And I realized that we had gone from really, when we got there, the whole denominational group of 200 and some churches was really almost at the bottom of the life cycle, which was a positive thing for us because people at least had some sense that things were bad. We went through one life cycle and when we got to the plateau, I knew or to the peak, I knew we had to go the next life cycle. Well, we got to the next, next life cycle about eight years into it. And for two years, I realized, number one, I wasn't sure where to take us. And number two, I really hadn't been that effective as a leader. And I and what hit me was the high sense of responsibility that had been put in me by my parents, that that <laughs> just to sit here and take a paycheck and, and to go through the motions. Uh, and I had worked with enough churches and denominational leaders and even seminary leaders to see where that had really ruined the organization by staying. 
it was just a, a sense of responsibility that I've got to get out of here. And uh, so uh, I just set a date and announced it and, uh, you know, and said, uh, that's it. And I'm out of here. So I wish I could tell you, I didn't, I didn't read some book. It was just, you know, <laughs> I, I, if my father was here, he would really be very disappointed with me. Now if I stayed. <laughs> Molly, I saw I saw you come up meet there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think I mean, I think what you just shared just um, demonstrates kind of this cultivation of of a sense of humility, or kind of knowing when when your time has come to to move on and, and to change. But I I'm always like I am always interested in individuals' leadership journeys. So, what is there um, an insight or a nugget that you've learned along the way that really shifted or transformed the way you think about yourself as a leader and the way you enact leadership. Yes. In fact, uh, what I've been talking about in this podcast, probably I, you know, I, 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 I was officially ordained into ministry in 1970 and I stepped down in 2012. So I don't know how many years that is, but about halfway through, I really had never seen myself as a leader. And, uh, I, I recognize I'd always seen myself as a great number two because I had been in positions where I had three different positions where I really helped had helped the other leader and in some cases led up. You know, it talks about leading up with a leader, but I never thought I was had it. And I realized that one of the reasons why, in fact, that it, it, it's almost embarrassing to say this, is that I had spent most of my career believing in the gospel of Maslow, where survival was the most important value in my life. Uh, now you got to realize I was born in 1944. So uh, I was, I was raised by parents of the depression, parents of world war II. I lived through the cold war. These were when my values were being shaped and we would crawl underneath the desk in case of a nuclear attack, which is today so stupid as though a wooden desk and was going to stop a fireball. I mean, that was just crazy, you know, but that's where my values were. My father, I remember saying to me, never quit a job until you have a job uh, because he had lived in the, the depression and that, that for the first 20 years of my profession, I wanted to make sure I didn't tick anybody off because it might impact my job. In fact, there were there were two times when I can look back and I basically compromised in terms of my values. And when it hit me that if I wasn't willing to take uh, the teaching of Jesus, who basically said to his disciples, they're going to kill me. And if you're my follower, they're going to kill you. Now, do you want to be my follower? <laughs> You know, and I thought I've got to be willing, which in my case, in, a, in the United States, death is the idea to lose the ability to to make a living. I've got to be willing to risk for what is right. Uh, and so those were seminal moments in my life when I changed. And by the way, once I changed, I found that my life as a leader was far more fulfilling, even though I was living many times with risk. And, and taking risks, knowing that I could lose my job over the process. I also dare say you you uh, got a little more joyful. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
that's true. That's true. She manifests itself in some other nice ways for me. Yeah. Well, I saw that my children were probably going to turn out okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, oh, oh my goodness, Dad, I am so grateful that you're here, Molly Adams. So grateful that you joined us today. Um, As we as we wrap up this conversation about transformation, about mission, and about uh, our leaders born, or can we can we work with people on their leadership skills? I just want to give you all one last sort of final word, if if you will, um, Molly. I'll start with you. Uh, any any last thoughts that you have as we as we walk off this episode? It was um, I think what's resonating is kind of in that last story is this idea of you almost shifting from kind of this idea of mission to missional. So how are, are you embodying that call to do this this work of leading? Um, for you, it's like leading kind of in the footsteps of of Christ, you know, I think for others, we have like different calls and, but that like being true to yourself and like showing that you will lean into, into that mission. I think that allows like as a leader, um, being able to, to lead and guide people into that space and place as well. Cause I think maybe there's a sense of trust and belief there. So thank you. Oh, I like that. A sense of trust. Nice. Adam. Any, any final thoughts for our- yeah, what a rich and beautiful conversation it's just been been such a pleasure so many topics to touch on uh purpose you know, mission uh you know growth coaching etc you know what I keep what you know I think your last response just really resonated for me there Paul with this shift and in increasing capacity for your leadership resulting from a change in meaning making. Uh, and maybe that being a really impactful point for leader development, especially as we look at if people can grow and change. I go back to Vaclav Havel's consciousness precedes being and not the other way around. And the capacity and increases uh, uh, for leadership oftentimes result uh, from a change uh, or shift uh, in our meaning making. So well said by a doctoral student. That was that was beautiful. Uh, Dad, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to share your thoughts on leadership with us today. As we leave this episode, any final reflection? Well, I'm going to pull out the age card now since I'm going to be 80 in February. So I'm going to play the age card. I'm old enough to realize that uh, the way we lead, how we lead, the context in which we lead, there's all kinds of change and it's happening and there's times when I really feel now almost as passe because of the amount of change, uh, talking about E.F. Hutton and others like that. However, the principles I'm convinced don't change and we can't throw out the principles with all the changes in context when it comes to either being a leader or not being a leader. What a great ending. I thank you so much to my guest, Dr. Paul Borden, uh, my dad, I also want to thank Molly Ayers, Adam Gearlock. Thank you so much for joining us. If you happen to be listening to this during the holiday season, we wish you all the best with whatever that means for you and to you, whether that's connecting with family or it might even involve events and fun. If you're listening to this at some other part of part of the year, we hope you're having a good year anyway. So uh, thank you all so much. Good, good luck and good leading. <laughs>